Well, good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Aspen Chapel. Uh, my name is Nicholas Feezy. I'm uh, the minister here. In 1943, 19-year-old Jim Van Der Veer was in the infantry as part of Patton's 5th Army, serving in Germany and France. Just a boy, the next two years of World War II's destruction and the liberation of France changed him to the core. His anchor through it all was the solace of the wayside chapels in the small villages. There he found hope and faith. On his final tour in France, marching through villages and hamlets, bringing supplies and war, post-war assistance, Jim saw the ruins of towns and the ruins of people. In every town, there was a church as a gateway. For strength, comfort and solace, he frequently stopped at these stone wayside chapels, some in ruins, some intact, but always welcoming. <coughs> This indelible connection of his youth is part of his strong faith today and part of our history. Jim's war experience and long journey to come to terms with it is part of the fabric of his life. And he didn't share his experiences with his family until 50 years later, when he faced it all while watching the film Saving Private Ryan. The Vindeveer family came to Aspen in the early 50s from Texas and built a home at Forth and Hallam. They began spending about six months in Aspen and the rest in Dallas. In the early 1960s, the family bought the Meadowwood property and eventually built a home in 1968 to 1969. There they kept horses in the existing barn and their daughter enjoyed the riding trails reaching out across the meadows and the surrounding valleys. Jim had long envisioned building a stone wayside chapel like the ones that gave him so much comfort in France, countryside, and in the aftermath of the war. And not long after he bought his Meadowood property at the entrance to Aspen, Jim donated land for the building of the chapel of the Prince of Peace in 1965. And here we are today. And Jim's daughter, Cindy, is here as well with us and representing the family herself and Martin, our husband. So I think just a little round of applause. It's lovely to have you as part of this celebration. For the rest of the story, I'm going to hand over to Greg Anderson, who is the chaplain here for 36 years. Thank you very much for that enthusiastic beginning. I'm very grateful to be here, and thank you all for, for coming. There's been a number of series of uh, forums about our 50th anniversary, and this is the first one. This first one is be about the building uh, and the architecture of the chapel. Second one will be about the spirituality. Uh, third one is about community. And the fourth one is about the arts and, uh, and music and the Beatitude windows. Very pleased to have the introduction with Jim Vanderveer uh, donating the land. This is Cameron Yost, who's also on our board of trustees. He is uh, on the trustees in, 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 uh, in, in memory, well, I don't want to say memory, but his father is Lyle Yost. And Lyle Yost is the one who paid for this chapel. There were many other donors as well. But uh, with, my, with my inheritance. It, it was. Uh, <laughs> so that's why we put him on the board of trustees. <laughs> so he would feel at home here. 
And in fact, he might even tell you that. He, he did work here for a little bit, and he probably slept here too. This is it. Uh, and so we're very pleased to have him. And then his, it's his great uncle, or Lao Yost, father's uncle, who had the vision for the chapel also from seeing wayside chapels in France, like Jim. They had that in common, and he would see these chapels in France and was inspired uh, by those chapels to bring that home. He became a, a Mennonite bishop in the state of Colorado, and he knew Aspen was a lot of places where people would come and go, and people from all over the world, and he wanted this chapel for, open to all people. And I'm very glad that we have great architects with us here, Heidi Hoffman, and she's been part of the, the chapel for a number of years, and she has given awards. She has been, made, she has been instrumental in having the architectural, well, she's going to tell you that the Association of Architects give awards to this chapel, and she's going to talk about that in a little bit. And uh, then we're also great, grateful to have another well-known architect in town, Harry Teague, who uh, I understand that they're both very old, like I am, <laughs> and so they were here when the chapel was around here, and, and Harry would be know of the original architects for this chapel as well. So we have a little bit of an outline, and we were going to be open up to some questions as well. If there's anything really, uh, we're going to give a little presentation here, but if there's anything really vital that you want to raise your hand, please do that, but we'll open it up toward the uh, end uh, as well. Let me begin with this at our groundbreaking. I've said this many times, but it's most fitting as we are acknowledging the building here uh, today, the, this beautiful building, but in 1968 at the groundbreaking, they had these lines, and I'm not too sure who wrote these lines, but you may have seen them or heard them, some of you, but if, if not, please listen on the groundbreaking of the Aspen Chapel. Take a setting provided by nature, offering the essence of spirituality in environment. Erect here architecture to evoke the functioning of the concept of engaging religious faith in conversation with the world. To this place gather in lively encounter leaders of all religious thought to redefine spiritual values, to question, to seek relevant answers in a troubled world. Here create a national global ecumenical center for seminars and dialogues on theological concerns of contemporary society. It is a testament to remind people in Aspen that there is foremost a spiritual dimension to our existence. And it goes on to say about some of the functions that they envisioned for this chapel, which we have been done. I also want to make sure to acknowledge, along with our guest panelists here this evening, that there is a committee. There's a number of committees for our 50th anniversary, but the this forum committee consists of our great leader, Shelley. And you guys can please stand up and do this. Shelley Miriam, she has been so helpful in this. Karen Cordes. Bobby Taliska, please stand up, and Susan Nicholson, uh, Stephen Knight, Tom Ward, Heather McDonald. It takes a lot of people to make anything happen here, and I really appreciate all of you being here, and especially our, our panelists. But let us, uh, because Lyle and, and E.M. Yost, and E.M. Uh, passed away uh, in uh, December of 1983, I believe. I had the chance to meet him. Um, as well a few times, not to talk to him at length, but I did have that. And of course, I was very close to Cameron's father, Lyle. He was just a great, he was head of the board of uh, trustees here for, for some time uh, until he couldn't really come up to the altitude. But 
who's a great man and very giving. And one of the themes, I'm going to stop here in a second, one of the themes is that the innovation that Bishop E.M. Yost had for this chapel for all people, uh, it, it was way ahead of his time, I believe, and, and, it, and it's certainly uh, relevant for today's spirituality. Um, and, and, and I would call that innovative. Lyle, Cameron's father, Lyle, was able to financially support this building of this place because of his incredible innovation in harvesting, mostly harvesting wheat. And because of those inventions, uh, he had a great company in Heston, Kansas. I attended uh, when he was in, uh, inaugurated into the Kansas Hall of Fame because of his inventions about wheat harvesting. Um, I was there, present in Wichita, and he was inducted along with a friend of his named Bill Lear for making an airplane. An airplane. And Lyle would go from field to field in Lyle's little tail dragger airplane to help people see what they need. Cameron, tell us about your father and great uncle. Well, thank you, Greg. And by the way, you wrote an excellent article in Sunday, yeah, Saturday's Aspen Times. Did anybody get a chance to read that? I mean, that, that really thoroughly went into the background of my great uncle, E.M. But um, before we get to E.M., some of the older trustees that are around here, or trustees who have been here a long time, not necessarily older, but Tom No, they're all remember. old. <laughs> that was, when, when my dad was around, we had one-hour trustee meetings. And there was a golf game because, too. because there was a tea time that he had to make with everybody. It was the beginnings of this, uh, the organizational structure of it was very, very interesting. Um, but more about EM, uh, briefly, uh, as Greg stated in the paper and, and explained it very well, my, my great uncle, EM Yost, uh, I knew him as Uncle Irvy, because that's what dad would call him. Um, was a very, very conservative Mennonite, grew up in a, in, a, in a Mennonite sect called the Holdemans, or referred to as the Holdemans, very conservative as, you know, as Mennonites go. And I grew up in a Mennonite community. Heston was about 1,500 people. We had, I think, four Mennonite churches. Even the, <laughs> even the Mennonites can't agree on theology. <laughs> and, of course, we had our token Methodist church there as well. But... Um, E.M. just apparently wasn't comfortable with, with some of the Holdeman Mennonite theology. And he uh, broke away, as, as it says in the article, uh, in the 30s, I think, or 40s, from, from the Holdeman church. And, he was very young. Yes, very young and embraced, though he did embrace the General Mennonite Conference and became a bishop in the Mennonite church. He had to agree that that Holdeman church was the one and only true Christian church. And he said, I can't do that. To be a Holdeman. That's right. Said, that's, See you that's later. Correct. And he was shunned. Yep. They, they, they still shunned to this day. Yes. Um, but he, he became a bishop and was in Switzerland, I believe, and at a, at a general conference, a Mennonite general conference meeting, where he was inspired by the wayside chapels and the architecture, the spirals that uh, would come up. And so when he came back, and he, he mentioned to Dad that it would be nice to have something like that somewhere. And 
Back in the 60s still, the Mennonites were involved in the hospital up here. They managed or administrated the Aspen Hospital, as well as the Glenwood Hospital. Um, they actually owned a house. Nicholas, I still wish we, they had it, <laughs> or, or we held on to that. <laughs> We'd probably get it back for $15 million. Um, but so with the Mennonites having a presence here, and then with the generosity of your family, we ended up getting this, this, this plot of land. And um, that's pretty much the history of it. They, Dad uh, helped fund it. And E.M., Uncle Irvy had the, the vision, and uh, here it is. And we're going to learn tonight, you know, with, with this discussion with the architects, a little bit more about the windows and, and what this all, how it all came together. But I can tell you a little sidebar here in the early days before Greg. Um, a lady out of Chicago. BG. <laughs> BG. Um, Elmira Snyder, and you'll see this in the history, she donated the organ. Her husband, Ken Snyder, was an executive with Kraft Foods. And when he retired, um, well, they had, they had a beautiful place in Chicago, in one of the suburbs, where Elmira had built a, something to house this beautiful organ on all the pipes. In her home. In her home, that's correct. So when they sold the home, and they came out here and built a house up in Starwood. Is that right? Starwood? McLean Flats. Yep. And uh, they didn't know what to do with, uh, with the organ. But, so this was being planned or built, and she said, hey, I'll, I'll donate the uh, organ. And so that's how that came to be, and I, I know Susan enjoys it, and uh, uh, it, it, you're the right person for it, for sure. But... Uh, one of the last memories I have of um, Uncle Irvy, he was his baritone voice, and his favorite hymn was How Great Thou Art. And the last time he was up here, must have been in the early 80s, I remember him leaning against that post because he was a giant man. He was huge. But he, you know, he needed to lean against something. But were you playing the organ then? But... The organ was playing How Great They Are, and he bellowed that thing out in his baritone voice. I mean, it was really, really uh, a moving moment. And that was the last time he was up here. But uh, he was able to sing that uh, his last time. Now tell them, very briefly, the, the, the money for this chapel came from this great invention that made a, a, a revolutionary in wheat harvesting. Tell them about me and the auger. Well, and, oh, you all know about the rotating auger, don't you? <laughs> and then a, a, a wind rower. Well, he, my, just briefly, my, my father was a wheat farmer in Kansas, and um, always being innovative, he, he had three combines, and and if you grow up in the plains, uh, you know about custom cutting, uh, where you uh, groups of uh, a farmer would own a bunch of combines and a crew. You start down in Texas in the early part of May when the wheat ripens. The wheat ripens in the south and ripens to the north. By September, it's ripened in Canada. So in May, you start cutting in Texas, and you just keep moving north through Oklahoma and Kansas, Nebraska, and the Dakotas by, by the end of summer. And a kid, I didn't, but my brothers, fought, uh, you go on harvest. You know, you 
That's how you spend your summer, on harvest. But you get to see the, the country. Um, so he took his three combines and went on harvest. But uh, instead of coming into a community and parking them, which I, I remember when I was a kid during harvest time, people would be parked at all these different lots, all these combines would be parked. And farmers would go up to him and say, hey, I got 40 acres I need you to cut. And, you know, farmers kind of, who only had 40 acres of wheat, they couldn't afford a combine. They had to have somebody cut it for them. So, and payment was often a part of the harvest. You get 10% of, of what comes off that field for the, for the custom cutter. That's how he got paid. Well, Dad would never want to leave his combines parked waiting for someone to come hiring. He just couldn't tolerate it. So he had a little Cessna 140, which is a little tail dragger with that stick between your legs. He'd fly ahead of his combine, combines lining up work. So his combines would literally not stop cutting. And of course, if they broke down, he'd fly into a, the largest, you know, the, the town to buy a new radiator, a belt, or whatever it needed, and fly back out and land in the field, always keeping those combines going. Well, back in the day, you had to stop the combine once the bin got loaded up with grain. You'd have to stop the combine. Trucks would come up under it, the grain truck. You'd open a chute, and all the grain would dump into that truck. And the whole thing took 15 minutes, maybe. But the combine wasn't moving. That it drove my dad nuts. So he actually was the, 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 he wasn't really an inventor, but he did come up with this idea, and Aidan Holdeman um, uh, in, in Heston had a machine shop and made a auger going down a pipe. It was like, a, that's basically what it was. It was like Drill. a pipe, yeah, with an auger through it. So when it turned, it would pull up that wheat out of the bin and dump it into the trucks. So the trucks could drive alongside the combine. And, You've all and, seen that probably it. when you see yeah. people farming. That's how this chapel got built. <laughs> well, that was that. And then from there, it, it went, yeah, yeah. So, and then he started making little farm implements to add to your combine. And then eventually, just it grew and grew from a machine shop in Aiden Holdeman's garage to the New York Stock Exchange. So, yeah. There's about 1,500 people in Heston, and he employed about 3,000. Well, that's right. There were 3,000 people employed there. And uh, that was always important to him to keep the people. In the, in the 70s, um, there was a uh, the price of beef, the cattle went way down. And the ramification, the ripples of that, really impacted the farm equipment manufacturers. And, and that's when the consolidations all started. But Heston survived. Um, it was purchased by Fiat, believe it or not. Fiat, yeah, it's, we're getting into things that have nothing to do with the chapel. But Fiat had manufactured, it's a large, the second largest tractor manufacturer in the world. Heston did not have a tractor, but it had 2,600 dealers across North America. Fiat had no presence in North America. Would love to have 2,600 dealers. They could sell their tractor in North America. So that was a pretty good fit. Fiat and Heston got together, and Fiat ended up buying Heston, but uh, now it's owned, and then they sold it, and now it's owned by a company called Agco out of um, Atlanta, which owns uh, J. 
J.I. Case and, and Massey Ferguson and all these little farm equipment companies that many of you may have heard of. But anyway, that, that's enough about Dad. Now, you worked here for a summer or so. Summer of uh, 1971. Came out here. Almira was the director. There really wasn't any programming except maybe on Sunday morning. There might have been a, a Christian service here. Um, but I, I lived down on Woody Creek and... I was going to school, going to college, and uh, anyway, I would clean the chapel during the day. I'd hang out here all day, and when tourists would come by, you know, I'd tell them about the windows, which we'll learn about tonight, the Beatitudes. And it was, so I was a tour guide. I was the uh, custodian and tour guide at the time, but it was very, very quiet uh, in this building back in the day, and then Greg cranked it up, and Nicholas just put it on a rocket ship, and with all the activities that go on here every day now. I know the founders would be really, really happy to uh, the way it's Make it very clear that, together. that they were very desperate. They, they was for the first seven or eight years were pretty quiet. They, they certainly were doing a lot of things, but not like they envisioned. And they were very desperate. And they, would, and they may get this local guy might, might help. And I'm serious. When I say they were desperate, they were desperate. Yeah, they needed, and they I, needed they, and they were des- And they didn't have any money to pay anyone. I said, well, it's okay. Well, I don't have much either. So we'll just <laughs> do our best and try to generate something. And, and that's how yeah. I did get there, out of their desperation, which was a great... Uh, I, I, I had no idea I'd end up being here so long. But let's go to uh, Harry next thing. Because the George Hennigan and, and uh, Daniel Gale who I was able to meet a couple times, and I might say, not, not long, but I've had, two, I've had conversations with them in the past. They're no longer living. I did ask George Hennigan, uh, is, this, is he proud about the chapel? And he said, very proud. And I'm also very proud of my home that I, I designed in Hawaii. Those two things are, are some of my favorite. Uh, and he said he was the primary architect on this. Daniel Gale walked me to, through, I spent about two hours with Daniel Gale, and we walked around the building, and he had, you get out of your car here, you go past the garden, you go past the windows here, and you go in the door, and you're not too sure what to expect, and all of a sudden you come underneath the eave here, and an explosion of golden light hits you, and that was his envision to do this. They both said they were primary architects on this. Of course they did. <laughs> there are and, and Harry is old enough to, to know them. Tell us about them. Well, I, I, I can't say I really knew them terribly well. I knew George a little better because when I first, I, I spent a year here right out of, in between college and grad school working for Fritz Benedict. And uh, George was working there uh, also. Um, and uh, as people probably know, Fritz was a, a, a studied with Frank Lloyd Wright. And so he attracted other people that were attracted to Frank Lloyd Wright's type of architecture. And George was one of those. Um, and he was young and talented and could draw well. And uh, the, the, that office at that time was uh, basically designing uh, snowmass. And what was emerging from that, uh, more importantly, or as importantly, uh, was the fact that Fritz worked for Frank Lloyd Wright, or studied with him and worked for him. Um, that the he was a, a developing uh, a type of architecture that was beyond what Frank Lloyd Wright was doing, or or at least an extension of that. A lot of Wright disciples pretty much tried to imitate the master, 
They didn't try and really do anything terribly innovative. Fritz took the message, and 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 you heard that in the in the dedication of the chapel here, took the message that the, of this integrating buildings into their environment. And uh, Frank Lloyd Wright preached that and didn't practice it all the time, as a lot of architects, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Um, but he, Fritz began a thing which you might call uh, a mountain, modern mountain architecture. And that included things like uh, lichen rock. Uh, he incorporated right in, uh, you said something? Timbers. Timbers, yeah, using natural timbers, using lots of wood and lichen rock and uh, various natural materials. Uh, and incorporating them into his architecture. So what you have here that George uh, was, was, he was uh, commissioned to do a building like a French cha a chapel in the French countryside. But what he did was he incorporated all sorts of things, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, ideas and Fritz Benedict's sort of extensions of those ideas. And uh, I don't know if you remember Fritz's first house and so on, but had rather interesting details like the roof was made of entirely of aspen trees that were cut down when they when they built so in the going out independence this was the that's the second house oh. that's up there now. The first house was where the aspen club is yeah. and and Fritz with a sod roof and and these were things that were that were beyond uh, sort of direct Frank Lloyd Wright interpretations and so on. So I'm just I'm giving Fritz some credit and then I'm giving George the credit of combining that with uh, basic uh, the the the, the uh, beginning of architecture for those chapels, which began in the basilicas in Rome. The, 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 the Christians uh, had to worship underground uh, in, in where, where the catacombs are, and they had to worship in secret. And so they would go down into these caves and so on. And what emerged from that was the, a basic shape. And this may have, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't born that long ago, so I don't really know for sure firsthand, but um, the, the... You were the, not in the catacombs. No, not, no, I wasn't an architect of them. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, I've been there, I just, yeah. So, but they would create the, 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 to, to, and this may have been based, based on pagan temples as well, there's no, no question, but the idea of having a row of columns that go down the side with an altar at the end, that, that configuration. So you get that in the plan of this building, right? That there is this row of columns that comes from the earliest days uh, of, of the Christian church when it was carved out of the mountains and they would, they would uh, out of the rock underneath Rome, and they would leave these pillars as structure and so on. And that became associated with the architecture that was associated with the religion. So he incorporated that. Now another thing that uh, those little chapels had, because they were in snow country, was a really steep roof, right? So uh, they would uh, reduce the amount of uh, the, the, the 
structure that they would need to hold up the snow. If they made the roofs deep enough, the, roof, the snow would slide off. But as you notice, this chapel is a combination of that. It has a very steep roof in the middle, of course, which makes it, when you look at it, very close to those images of the French chapels and so on. But then it has this lean-to porch that goes around. That's very Rydian. The, the top part, the steep part in the middle, is very is sort of the French Gothic. And then the Rydian is the horizontal nature of the porch that surrounds the building. So he combined both those things. Uh, the other uh, feature that exists in uh, uh, you know, some of the earlier sort of chapel architecture was they would make a thing, they were building out of stone, mainly in those, and they would make a, a, a very often they would support and brace the, uh, the columns that, that line both sides in order to get the height that they wanted. We're, we all probably are familiar with French Gothic cathedrals who, whose height soars out of sight over your head and brings you to your knees no matter what religion you are. You get in that space and you can't help but feel it and you get this huge association between the space and the, and the place that you are and what you're supposed to be thinking of at the time, right? So that, that make that connection. So they would brace it. And so in this case, they, uh, he braced it, or which, which of the two were the primary architects actually did this, <laughs> braced it with uh, the, this kind of bracing here. And, uh, uh, but, but what's very interesting, and there's a, fry, there's a Frank Lloyd Wright touch which are these little tiny blocks of wood that come down inside the columns. Now, again, the, uh, the French Gothic architects figured out that they had, they had uh, stone columns, and they tried to make those columns feel as light as possible. The, 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 the basilicas in Rome had great big, huge 12-foot diameter stone columns left over from the rock they were carved from. And then, as architects, we were always Im ambitious and interested in getting sort of more lightness and more space. And so we reduced the size of the columns. Now, the French did a special thing where they, they took the column, and instead of taking it, they figured out that if they broke the column up from one single element into an element that had more facets to it, that it appeared more slender than it would if it were one solid column. So these columns are crisscross, if you see. I don't know if the cross is actually a well, symbol, just, but, but... I was just going to add that the, um, with the French Gothic, um, to make those members or those columns feel lighter and more open and airy, they put the structure on the outside, mm -hmm. and they were... Flying, called flying buttresses, but that's, if you see that architecture with the structure really bracing the whole building so the interior could be, right. as you said, And, and a little bit of that goes on here. So if you see these columns, this, Heidi's right on target there. So you see these columns going up and this brace coming across the side. Now, if you could imagine, if the interior of the building stopped at these columns, then those would be the buttresses on either side. So they're incorporating very traditional 
uh, aspects of uh, ecclesiastical design, but they're doing it with wood and local materials and a little bit of the Frank Lloyd Wright touch of the little blocks. If you know Frank's work, there's lots of little blocks like that on his stuff. So that was a little bit of ornamentation in order to lighten up the columns. So those things, one other aspect of the, that's worth of note in terms of the architecture is uh, the, uh, the way that you enter, which is, as Greg was pointing out, was intentional, this idea of not entering rather directly. Probably those French chapels, I'm almost 99.100% sure, that every one of those had a, a door with a little bit of a sacristy before you went into the main nave and so on, and it was all very axial. So to, to follow up on that tradition, you either would have entered dead center on that end of the place or dead center on this side. So what I would say again, this is probably Frank Lloyd Wright and other modern sort of approaches, sort of relinquishing them from the responsibility of following the French pattern exactly and say, we're going to take them by the garden, walk them along the porch so they get to experience nature, come around, come in from the less obvious side and maybe not quite so central uh, and, and come in, you know, so that's an unusual aspect. Of the plan. Yeah, he was very this. specific about not just getting out of your car and walking into a church. He had yeah. to have a little time yeah. to, to get there. And, and uh, he said, when you come under here and then you want to have this explosion of golden light, like God's rays coming down in this golden light, and, and with, in keeping with that, there is a person here tonight who is responsible for climbing a ladder all the way to the top and putting that gold glass in the clear story one at a time, uh, and, and that you all individually cut. There's, I don't know, some 800 panes or something. Tom Ward counted them one day. <laughs> um, and they're each individually had to be sized and cut, and he was also instrumental in doing the, uh, introducing us to Jean-Jacques Duval, also a French designer who did the windows, of course. And, uh, and, so, and, and installing these windows and climbing up, putting each one of those, and he's here tonight, and I've just met him for the first time. I had a conversation with Jean-Jacques Duval on the phone for about an hour two weeks ago. That was delightful. He's in great shape in New York. Uh, and uh, he and my, Michael Anmach uh, uh, are still good friends and talk a number of times, and I just met Michael Anmach for the first time tonight. Let me introduce you to him. He's the one who did those windows. Michael. Hi, Michael. And Michael's wearing a sh beautifully golden shirt. <laughs> We've got one broken up there. A little bit later tonight. Yeah, if you don't mind, we could do that. To tell you the truth, there was one that uh, I we had during a, it was outside there, and we were throwing some snowballs, and somebody broke one up there. I think it was me. And, but we got we have some of that glass downstairs. We got it fixed. It's what? It's yeah, it's a little thinner than than a sheet of paper. It's all hand blown glass. Yeah. Hand-blown glass. It's a hand-blown glass, hand an eighth of an inch, inch thick. 
John Jacques said, this glass is from France. You cannot get this glass any other place. People come in here and say, no, that's, they tell me that this is all plastic. That's manufactured in, in Michigan. Uh, but it's all, and he said, you cannot get this kind of glass any place, any, uh, any other place. And you were saying that this is, is it awesome? Just very quickly. It's German? It's, it's mouth blown? Oh, yeah. Speaking? Turn it on. Oh, Just speak into it. Yes, speak English. <laughs> Let's speak into it. <laughs> it's working. It's on, just speak into it. Okay, okay. Uh, the, upper, the, the upper class, the, called the antique class, mouse blown class, imported from Germany, although they have some factories here too in, in the United States, but at that time we got all the glass imported from France and Germany. And, well, the, the glass came in a box, and the, the, the sheets are about, uh, about three by four feet. And I remember uh, downstairs I made my work table, and I start cutting those pieces. <laughs> the work. Well, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. And Harry, I'm so grateful of all those details and the, that influence that you have said there. And do you have something else? I want to move on to Heidi here, too. No, the only other thing I would say is that uh, there have been several polls of people about their favorite building in Aspen. And uh, we're always in the running, but we always lose out to this building. That yeah, this so all the buildings that you built around here, <laughs> we're very grateful for that. <laughs> that many of the buildings we have are on the list at least, but then people get to this, and this tops the list every time. But you, you have done a few nice things around town. <laughs> Not as nice as this, no. but pretty nice, you know. The tent, the school, on and on. Well, it deserves that. So it's... Beautiful building. Yeah. And Have you ever worked on a building that used to be Fritz's? A couple. Well, I unfortunately had to take one down. I know. I took one down by Herbert Beyer and one down by Fritz and so yes. on. So this this is always trouble. But you you get you get a building that is um, no longer suited for what it's suited for. And I, I would say that that's one of the things about this. I'm I'm a believer in architecture that that it can really make a difference in people's lives. And that, that it is a combination of the poetry of the place and the functionality of the place. And that the longevity and affection that people have for this building is because, you know, th this is architecture that is, is working. It's, it's architecture that, that has uh, accommodated, and, and I know it's not fixed in stone to make a bad pun, <laughs> but it's it's but it, it's uh, it basically with modifications as those ancient chapels did too. You know, it it continues to serve a, a very a combination of functions as gathering place, as community, uh, a, a monument to the community. It goes back to the body, mind, and spirit. It is the spirit component of Aspen. And while it doesn't probably get attended or used by everybody in town, I think it 
represents a very strong place in everybody's yeah. heart, both because of how it looks from the outside and how it, how it feels when you are inside. You think of all the services we've done, we have probably affected a large portion of the population and, and visitors and, and second homeowners in Aspen. You know, not all at one time, but overall, there's been a lot of people that have come, well, thousands and thousands of people uh, a year. There's a universality, mm -hmm. you know, to our approach theologically and a universality architecturally. I hope right. as well. There's a, a universal appeal here. And this, this theme for this evening is if you build it, they will come. And it, it attracted a lot of people. When I first got here in 78, people were visiting an awful lot. But there still wasn't much, you know, there, there still wasn't the leadership right. here, the consistency. Elmira Schneider helped filled in, but she wasn't looking for another job at the time. And there was another person who came in. But it, it, needed, it still needed people. You know, it's like, a, you know, here's the door and here's the steeple and open the doors and see all the people. Well, there, was a, there was a building, yeah. but there wasn't any of these um, people uh, in, in, inside. And it took maybe having a local and we just started doing something um, here and, and having some services and it, it grew from there. But it, 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 you can't just build it and see if somebody comes. You have to build it and have programming and people. And, and, and that and it combination has to, has to work, you know, functionally. And the space downstairs is lively and has million things going on. And I've been to countless numbers of weddings and memorials as well as regular services. We're, we're so, open to yeah. doing more, yeah. uh, you know, a wedding if <laughs> if I have one. <laughs> I've already had two. Yeah. <laughs> Heidi, you have been great in. Uh, in, in giving a couple of very distinguished awards. And tell us about AIA first, but I also want to know personally what made you, what motivated you to do this for the chapel. It was such an honor. So I guess um, I would say that I grew up with this chapel in a sense. Uh, I first came to Aspen um, to see the town in the summer of 66, right before I started um, college in Boulder. And that dates me right there. But I came up a lot to ski. Um, if you remember, Vale was just starting and Aspen was the destination resort. Anyway, um, I was here in 68, 69. I watched it get built. I sort of grew up watching the landscaping grow up around it, um, the roundabout. And so the history has certainly been there for me. And I, as uh, Harry said, um, you can't help but be brought into this space through the various activities that the church has, or the chapel has started over the years. Um, and I, that appealed to me. Anyway, um, back in 2011, I was president of our AIA chapter here in the West Slope, and AIA is the American Institute of Architects. And it's the voice of the architectural profession and a resource for its members uh, in service to society. And I had been, you know, involved in honor awards programs before at the state level. And I thought, well, sure, I'm going to, you know, recommend this building. And the reason I thought about recommending this building as opposed to maybe some buildings I've been working on, um, for example, the Hotel Jerome in 1985, I was very involved in that. But I really, that didn't make it for me in terms of my uh, uh, 
decision to nominate this building for the 25-year award. Let me just, um, uh, well, first of all, we won the 25-year West Chapter Award. I'm not sure how many others were in it, but um, submitted. And then that encouraged us to submit to the Western Mountain Region, which is a group of six states, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, and Wyoming. And I think one more. Uh, can I get Nevada? But anyway, it's the Western Mount, Rocky Mountain Region. And I just felt, in light of that and the image that I felt um, uh, and the purpose that this mm -hmm. building has served over the years. Oh, there it is. Um, I'll just read this, which is on there. So I submitted it for the next year for the Western Mountain Region, which is a little more high profile. So I really had to dig into um, understanding uh, a lot more of why I was recommending this building. So let me just say the 25-year award for AIA Western Mountain Region recognizes a built structure that has significantly influenced design and lifestyle in the Western Mountain region. And I really, when you look at that, I really feel this building certainly uh, achieves that. I do want to give credit to um, one of the members here who wrote me a beautiful recommendation. That's Jeanette Darnauer. Uh, I really held fire to her hands to get this done, but she did a beautiful job, and it's in the back of this. And we'll have this, do we have this downstairs? Just, this is the submittal, so people can look at it at another time. But... So I just have to jump in as an architect sure. and say that the 25-year award, architects are, we give ourselves lots of pats on the back, because nobody else will, but we, uh, we, we uh, have, so there are lots of awards and in various levels and so on. Uh, on the other hand, they're not uh, each year. There's only one 25-year award, and frequently there's none. Mm -hmm. And actually, getting that award is probably the most important uh, award that can be given for a building uh, that the AIA gives because um, it's it's. It recognizes that not only that the building is important architecturally, but that it has it has legs. It's done this for a long time, and it's served its community for a long time. So that is a huge distinction. I really thank you for submitting it for one, Heidi. That's You're really welcome. great. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Anything else you wanted to add to that, Heidi? Um. Not really right okay. now. Right. Well, we've got Someday. some other things. We are trying to follow the theme of the past, the present, and in the future. We're going to talk about the, the, the future here in just a, a moment as, as well. Uh, but we have this French connection. Isn't there a movie called French Connection? Yes. <laughs> we have this French connection, you know, with, now I just have just really recently learned about Jim's uh, connection there. And, of course, EM uh, was at a, 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 a World Mennonite conference in France, and then a World Council of Churches in Geneva, Switzerland, and your mother was the one who told me, imagine him coming home in the airplane with a bigger vision in his mind. And, and it wasn't easy. This, is, this was not built by the Mennonites. It was a, a couple Mennonite individuals, but it was never a Mennonite church. 
And when I first got here, everyone told me it's a Mennonite church and it's for sale. It, it had not been too active in, in the past. And, and realtors would come by and, and show it. Uh, and I said, well, if you do, the money goes to me. Uh, but no, no. They, they did, but I said, no, it's not for sale. And, and it never has been for, for, for sale. But it just it needed, a, it, it needed some programming uh, to it. Now, the other French connection is in Tours, France, there is a uh, cathedral that is where St. Martin was in the 6th century. And he uh, is, was known for cutting his, his cape in, in half to give to someone who was in need of warmth outside of the gates of the city. And that cathedral in Tours, France, created a special building on the side of the cathedral, attached to the cathedral, to house this cape. And in France, it's called capella. And that capella means cloak. And that became the capella room in honor of, the, of venerating St. Martin. And that, uh, that word capella in English slowly became chapel. And, and, and that was, again, a French uh, connection. And so when people ask what my title is, I am a cloakroom. And Nicholas, this is now handed down to you. You are part of a cloakroom attendant. Uh, so when you, when you hand coats out to people, know that that's the title of chaplain. That's what a chaplain means is a cloakroom attendant. Tip well. Attendant. But that, anyway, that is that French, that's where the word chapel comes from as a, as a small uh, building outside, you know, next to the cathedral to venerate that, that cloak. Capella, <laughs> new job description. Now, so that being said, um, this building, I don't know if this building would get approved by our, our city councilman there or uh, other planners. I see we have government people. I know Snowmass wanted to build a, uh, a steeple, and they wouldn't let them. The Snowmass right. Chapel. Do you right. remember that? Yeah. Yeah. They would not necessarily let them have a steeple. I, do you think this would get approved today? I, and I might. I want to also add, in my 37 year, or, you know, even more than that, and, you know, 40 now. I'm still helping out a little bit. Thank you. Um, I have never heard anyone say anything bad about the chapel. I've only heard great things about this building and the chapel. I've never heard anyone say, well, that's a real ice. Everyone loves this chapel. I've never heard anything. Um, I think everyone loves it's the iconic. chapel. iconic. Huh? Iconic is the first thing you see. It is iconic. After the no mountains. Right. And it, how fortunate it is serendipitous that this happens before you hit the S-curves. Because right. uh, at, the, at that point, you're... Uh, you can admire the building and think how wonderful Aspen is. But before is. long, we won't be able to see it from down there. The trees are going to grow up all around it. Anyway, I, I do, you know, the, the, the nature of the, of, of the image. And it, it is, a, a, you know, basically a Christian image that I think the, 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 the chapel has done and the administration of it has done a great job in making it much more universal. And that's really, but the imagery is obviously one of a, a you know that, but that marked you know the, and i'm just saying the, those chapels were used for pilgrimages and you can imagine that that in the days of foot traffic and horse traffic and so on knowing where that steeple is and where you're trying to go and where your next place to 
bed down would be with, with in the cloak of Martin over here. Uh, the, the, this would be where it is. So those steeples served a really important function of telling people where the town was and so on. And, and it, you know, it, it is not just a religious icon. It was actually uh, had a had a serious function. You, you've heard of the expression, you know, the, for the horse race, the steeplechase. The whole idea was to was to race your horses to the next steeple and so on. That was the, that that whole thing happened. So it's a really important icon for a town, as you said, icon. And so you you have to. Uh, let you say whatever, but I'm just saying, you know, it no longer serves that function, but as Zomas was dying for a steeple, I think Beaver Creek was dying for a steeple. I mean, you know, they don't have what this town has, which is this prominent, beautiful spot, absolutely pivotal at the confluence of all the valleys. I mean, you think of it, it's the confluence of all the valleys and having this point, if you were designing this from scratch, this is where you'd put this. Obviously, we all hope that it's going to be here for another 50 years and a whole lot more. Will this structure be attractive in the future? Now, we have, we've maintained, we've purposely as a town maintained our Victorian places. I mean, the historical society is maintaining. That's the beauty of this town. I hope this chapel fits within that. But we have a sanctuary here. Uh, Beaver Creek has a beautiful glass looking out at the, at the, at the field and the mountains and the stream. And, and it, you know, to, to, to separate ourselves from the world is not where we are theologically. And the steeple is to point upward, uh, to remind people. And what you said about the steeple is just great. But uh, I hope that this building, that we are a progressive uh, theological uh, establishment, that you're great uncle had and your father nurtured and it was so great to have the Jewish community be part of this chapel and the spiritual paths and all those people coming together and this building has a universal appeal so it's doing its job. I trust it will go for the future. And if I may add one thing, um, from, the, from the beginning the theology of the way this was, the reason it was built, uh, my mom had a influenced my father, let's put it that way. It was without her, uh, her and Uncle Irvy uh, saw eye to eye that there's, there's, there's many paths to the same place. And uh, I remember as a kid, my mom was way ahead of her time. Uh, she, she, there was no Mrs. Lyle Yost. If, you would, uh, if she was ever addressed that way, she would say, excuse me, I'm, I'm Mrs. Irma Yost. Um, but she, there was a cross up on the steeple one time, and she is instrumental. She had a fit when she saw it, and several months later it came down, and there was a dove placed up there. But um, no, her theology and Uncle Irving's theology were, were very, very similar. Okay. So I just wanted to so plug, plug my mind. So architecturally, do you guys, what, what is your feeling? Will we be sustained in the future? Well, I think, it, like anything, it shouldn't ever be frozen in time. It should be tuned up, but not, not in any way. The, the fundamental part of it should be saved. I mean, there are aspects. I mean, no, nobody's, even if somebody throws a snowball at the glass, we, we better fix that, I think. You know, you should have better aim anyway. <laughs> and, uh, 
But I, I just think, no, no, it, I, I think it, it, it is, how would you tear down or uh, modify the, a building that is adored like this building? I don't think you can do that. But you, certainly you want to make it useful. Europeans are very uh, are good about that. They, they'll take a, a, a chapel and they, they modify it carefully and with sensitivity to serve the new purpose, but not, not I mean, you know, you wouldn't in any way uh, mess with the what's really right. already We're going to lead into... Heidi, do you have a... No, no I, I, I agree with you. I don't see any reason to uh, modify this more than what is absolutely necessary. I can certainly look at issues architecturally that aren't really necessary to talk about at this stage. Things like waterproofing, um, you know, just maintenance issues that back then maybe weren't as advanced as we use today. So in my case, I would say just minimally. Modify, modify. carefully. Nicholas. Thank you. Well, I'd like to thank all our guests here who've been so instructive. Um, absolutely fantastic. Um, um, but we're getting really to a time where we'd like some input from yourselves. Um, on your uh, chair, you'll find um, a little uh, sheet here and a pen. It says, what struck you most about the architectural history of the chapel? What struck you most really about this presentation? And what do you think we should do next with the building in terms of both upgrading it and creating new spaces and facilities? Now, you know, now we've got the chapel here, the sanctuary. Uh, what happened is that uh, the, the pews were removed. You've got these lovely chairs. Um, this is being live streamed uh, with a broadcast system up there. I'd like to welcome everybody who's watching it live stream, either live or, or later on. It's great to have you with us. Downstairs, we've got the art gallery. We've now got offices over here uh, where, where the administrative staff are. Uh, we've got the Jewish community, we've got their offices downstairs, and there's a, a classroom down there. So there are a whole load of things that are all the way around the building. And what I'd like to, I'm going to open it up for anybody to, to say anything they want to about uh, um, the building itself and make any suggestions. But what I'd like you to do, if possible, is also, while that, is to write the, your, your information down. I'm going to just steal this microphone here, if that's okay. Yep. And give it to... Turn it, now, turn it on. Turn it on. Th is, it, is it off now? Yeah, yeah, I'll put it on. And I'm just going to ask if anyone has, while you're writing, if, I'm going to start with Tom Ward over there, if you'd like to go to the back. Anyone like to make any points, uh, any suggestions about what we do next in the future? Um, any, any, so, Tom, you start. I just have a couple of little trivia things that are, might be interesting to people. The steeple is 110 feet tall. Uh, and the view from the windows up there is fabulous. Um, when Greg put the, the uh, snowball through the windows, we decided we probably should repair them. And we found over 90 broken windows up there, probably from just movement of the building over the years. So we ordered the glass. It's in a wooden crate downstairs. And we repaired all the windows. Michael's going to do it now from now on. Yeah, Michael, I'm going to come up back there. And... Great. Thank you, Tom. That's brilliant. Anybody else like to make any points about anything, either the presentation or about the, the, the chapel itself? Any, anybody, anyone like to say anything? Yes, Bruce here. Thank you. And do for, yeah. Take the microphone because we need uh, for the live stream. Testing, okay. Uh, we, we sort of imagine uh, at some point we might be able, because of the cost of housing here and so forth, to build additional structures on the, on the, 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 the lot. Um, 
Do the architects have any advice on how we should do a stealth? Good question. Uh, you know, augmentation to the to the space here. Lots and lots and lots of advice. No, we'd love to <laughs> help with that I'm send problem. The bill later on. <laughs> right, right, exactly. No, I, I think for, certainly it should happen. There's a great tradition of that. Um, there's all sorts of cases where you know, in a lot of the the, the precedents for the chapels that we keep talking about in Europe and England too, sir. Yes. yes. Uh, there are, you know, parish houses and various, you know, abbeys and whatnot, rectories and all sorts of things that, that accompany uh, the building. And uh, and I think it can be done really sensitively. There's no reason that that, that wouldn't uh, help, you know, and add to the uh, complex. Well, if anyone feels it, we aren't looking for a rectory at the moment if everyone wants to invest. And we're looking at giving away the naming rights if you'd like the name right. <laughs> it could be called the Smith Rectory, if you like, whatever your name is. So, well, yes. you know, the one question I had about that, because I was thinking about that since I've talked to a few people, but I'm curious, the, the, the lot, where, where is the site envelope? Um, it, it, well, I guess I should back up. I think the land has been sort of bifurcated with paths. Well, I think and uh, roads you, and your question would probably take 30 minutes to answer and would, in, would involve four lawyers at the moment as right. well. But there is, a clear, there is a clear space that is going to be uh, delineated as it. We're okay. really near to signing a deal as to what that is, and there will be various spaces that are available. We're giving various little bits, which include the cycle paths, and we're, we're gaining other bits that will enable okay. us to create plots in okay. that. So that's what happened. So. Good, yes. Yeah. So we go to Jeanette and then we'll uh, 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 come to... Uh, Kathleen. <laughs> this is fantastic. Thank you guys so much. I learned a lot. I really appreciate it. I appreciate what you were saying, Harry, about <clears throat> the need for architecture not to remain static. I, I don't remember your exact words. but So I would ask Bruce's question just a slightly different way, and that is, what should we not do? How could we screw it up when we try to do, sounds like this is not, it's fine. yeah, okay, it's cracking. Uh, when, when there are some additional things done, whether it's downstairs to the gallery or whether it's an addition onto the, to the building, uh, how could we screw it up? You know, I think we need to be forewarned of some things that we need to be aware of in, in being able to modify what's here without going too far. Screw it up. <laughs> well, I think you have to see what functions you need. Is that not working? No, no, that's not, that mic's not working, so you use my Oh, mic. it Go isn't. On. Okay, it sorry. Been. Oh, it has been. Okay. So I guess I would, um, I kind of lost my thought there. Um, so how do we not screw, how do we not oh, screw it up? Oh, I think you have to do programming that doesn't overwhelm whatever addition you might consider. Yeah. And, it, of course, it has to be super sensitive. Yeah to being added on to an existing building. I don't think it has any historic bearing in the, it's a county, in, isn't this the county? And there, I mean, I'm sure it is historic and it should be, but I just think you have to be careful. I'm sure and, and Yeah, and I, I would say uh, just, it has to be done really carefully. And I would suggest you hire a very good architect. <laughs> <laughs> 
and and that 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 the process is one one of going going slowly and not figuring it out. It's the answer isn't probably exactly simple one way or the other. I'd say the building and and its general appearance uh, are are very important in terms of its exterior. Interior, the light and the glass and so on are all very very important. There's some materials that are precious. There are others like this floor that's sort of off the shelf flooring, not so fancy. I mean, it's, I'm not saying we should replace that, but the idea is there's some things that are probably not as uh, sort of intrinsic to the building. The the, the Building has good bones, yes, <laughs> and you keep the bones, right. and you can you can uh, add and move around within it. I mean, I, I wondered what was. I mean, I've been here so many times, and the fact that there weren't pews, I didn't kind of register until you mentioned it, and yes. uh, th th that's really interesting. And I think that that's a question of of the function. A lot of the big cathedrals don't have pews. I mean, a lot of the, they, they have places people stand in them and so on and that, that kind of thing. There's lots of sort of room for movement, I would say. Um, you know, one of the things I wondered what, Greg, you were sort of hinting at is, is there a way to get more of the outside in without destroying what's happening, you know, with the stained glass? And how do you do that? I don't know. It may be difficult or impossible. But I, I don't think you'd want to lose the effect of the glass and the ambience and the glow uh, in order to do that yet. Uh, but I, I could see that that was something that, that you know, came up. Thank you. Catherine, let's have you. I was also struck by a statement of nothing should be frozen in time. Thank yeah. you for that. And the other thing that was really beautiful about this presentation is to me, who is an immigrant, a 37 years immigrant into this country, and I studied architecture here, and one of my first boss was Harry Teague, is, uh, is I'm absolutely in love and fascinated how architecture comes together in this country. You know, like the stories of the people, like, you know, and the finances, and, and somebody just really liked something while they were in Europe in World War II. You know, and, and it's also um, a type of confusion in architecture. I remember, like, in the early 90s, we were doing a project at Harry Peake's office called uh, Learning from Leadville. Do you remember that? <laughs> And, and there is something, so what I'm, what I'm, my point I'm trying to make is there's something extremely sentimental and beautiful about the history and the elements. And I'm also a firm believer not to be frozen in time. And I think whatever is going to happen is going to be part of that texture that is already here. And the other thing I just wanted to say that in terms of downstairs, the gallery space, and the kids' room, and the other offices, they don't really have any identity. You know, that could be anywhere. That could be, in, you know, like they are just room. They don't really have any sense of space. They don't particularly relate to the, you know, to the upstairs. I mean, I think there's tremendous amount of room for improvement. You know, and, and in terms of to me, what's also fascinating, and it's really beautiful, it's definitely a place as you enter into Aspen, you know, like this is the chapel, and, and it's also where, you know, you have all these wonderful, you know, um, 
diversions. Um, anyway, this is, this is, I think it has to be like a work study. Like we have to sit down and spend a couple of days, <laughs> you know, so. sketching it out. But one more thing which I remembered I was going to say, like we are talking about the chapel, but what you said, the site is so much bigger. You know, and I think to have maybe other functions, including a residence, and how all of that will tie together. And maybe that's where the opportunity is for the views. You know, because maybe we can touch this, or maybe we can, I don't know. Thank <laughs> anyway, you for that. Thanks. I mean, just some of the ideas uh, that, that people have come up with, just to, you know, one thing that this building doesn't have is disability uh, entrance. And so the idea of building a lift or something like that that will allow uh, that to come in. As you said, downstairs is very uh, plain. There aren't really any children's facility, proper children's room uh, with, you know, stuff for them to do, things, things that, to encourage children to participate in it. There's another idea of maybe doing a, some sort of high-end coffee shop downstairs or something so, so that people can come and have a cup of coffee and participate in the building. You know, that's another idea that, that, that people have had. Um, and so they're different, maybe doing a, having a yoga studio here. Uh, there's another idea of, of having more classrooms so that we can have more uh, events where teaching is done. Those are the sum of ideas that people have been speaking about. So when you're considering what to put down in your, your thing, and we will be looking at your ideas carefully, uh, do think of anything that you think that we could include in that. Anyone, any other things that people would like to say? Or Yeah, Laurel, do you want to give uh, Laurel the microphone over there? Thank you. I just wanted to um, thank Kerry for his point about the impact of the chapel on the community psyche, you know, uh, just apart from the committed community that, you know, comes together, gathers together here regularly. Um, it, it's a great point that every, every visitor to Aspen, every local who goes to and from town, you know, has some sort of psychic impact from this, the structure and from the building and from the, the beacon of peace, the welcoming beacon of peace that it presents to everyone who comes and goes through the town. And that's a wonderful point of our stewardship as we think about as a community, as a chapel community, the next 50 years, you know, carrying that, that stewardship forward in a meaningful way. And I also am um, <laughs> just so struck by the belfry. I, I never really looked at it the way I'm looking at it now after this discussion. And I'm wondering, A, why I've never been up in it, and B, why we haven't been raising money with brunch in the Belfry. I think it would be the hottest ticket in town, and I'm coveting well, I think, it myself. I think I'll get Tom Ward to answer that, I think, because uh, I think the Belfry at the moment... Are you talking about the tower? Yeah, the tower. Yeah, there's a reason why people don't go up there, isn't there? Because it's, uh... We can all go up there. It's uh, not easy. I might have to climb a ladder. Yeah, I have to climb a ladder. Thank you for that, Laura. I really appreciate that. The, the welcome to Aspen that the chapel gives is absolutely fantastic, and it's, it, it's brilliant. Any, any other thoughts anybody's got about... Uh, or about... question. No questions, yeah. Yes, uh, Donna at the back. Thanks. I'm going back to the beginning a bit, but I just wanted to honor the generosity of the Mennonite Church because unless, uh, if, as I understand it, when, um, uh, when the Mennonite Church had, when this was being built, it was a mission 
of theirs. It wasn't to be a Mennonite place yeah. serving only Mennonites. And I, I think that's a very generous spirit. And they funded this chapel for a number of years, as I understand it, until the local community could begin to take, take some ownership. Yeah, they, they helped a little bit, but it was never intended to be right. part of the Mennonite, you know, uh, arena, so to speak. But Cameron, you're right, they, they Cameron's father would say that, that uh, the Uncle Irvie uh, took criticism as a, as a Mennonite minister here in, in Denver. And what's he doing at the end of his life? He was still kind of with the Mennonite church. What's he doing on building this independent chapel? But his vision was so important to have a chapel for everybody that he had to go beyond just being Mennonite. And that was a great, great vision. And we are, I, I believe we are honoring that the best of our ability. Thank you. Well, I'm not going to pass this around and ask for money, which is normally what happens in the chapel. Uh, the reason I'm holding this up is, the, uh, is at the back there's one of these as well, and, uh, which has uh, been moved over there. Sandy, if you'd like just to move that into the middle, yeah. What we'd like you to do is just to fill in your forms and put them in, in here as well. Um, and there's one of these downstairs. If you, downstairs, we'd like to invite you all to come down for a uh, reception. Uh, uh, and there is uh, a table. Um, uh, Shelley has put together a... I mean, really, if you want to look on our, our website, Shelley Merriam has put together this most fantastic timeline of the history of the chapel. And I really want to acknowledge Shelley again uh, for what she's done in getting together today. Where'd she go? She's been absolutely fantastic. Where is she? Um, she's making food or something. Cindy rang me up with a question yesterday, and I said, well, Cindy, I think I'll just pass you on to our historian. <laughs> and, she, and, and she really has taken on this role of being the historian, and it just gives us all context. And when you have context, you then have meaning. And I think that's what you've given us, uh, uh, Shelley. You've given us a context which creates meaning for us as well, and I'm so grateful for all that you've done. You. So do go downstairs and have a look at the, um, the history which is on the table. Go downstairs and have a drink. Please fill in your forms, because we want to know uh, what, you, what you think and what you think we should be doing next. Uh, it's important to us. We'll use it as we study what to do. So I really want to encourage you uh, to do that. And, and a special uh, thanks to Heidi and Harry and Cameron who came over from Colorado Springs in the snow uh, today. And so grateful to see, when I look out here, just in the gathering here tonight, I see people who've been with us since almost when I got here. And I can look at you and see all these familiar faces. It's yeah. very uh, heartening to me to, to see that, as well as new faces and a combination of that, because it, as important as the building is and what it does for us and the, the importance of the, of, of the architecture and the role of architecture, uh, it still is, you know, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors and there's got to be people. And just to follow that on, this is the first of, of four events that we're having. If you, this form is there. You'll see the second one that we've got is spirituality. It's on the history of the spirituality of the chapel. That's going to be on April the 11th. Again, it'll be here. It'll be 5.30 to 7. There'll be a reception afterwards. We're going to have a Zoom uh, conference call with Rami Shapiro uh, and Ed Bastian. And Cynthia Brajot is sending a video. And we're going to talk a lot about how the, the, the history of the spirituality of the chapels developed. And really looking at what's happening now and what do we want to have in the future. And then the third one, which is on May the 9th, is going to be about the, the chapel for a community, looking at the outreach of the chapel, you know, where we've had an effect in the past, 
Where could we have an effect in the future? And then lastly, a sensory experience, a sense of place, music and architecture. That's going to be a wonderful um, uh, concert. Uh, uh, Susan is putting that concert together. It's based around the Beatitudes, the windows, uh, music around that. There'll be a choir. So, so we'll be advertising the papers for this and advertising it all around the place. So do uh, watch out for the adverts and, and do come along and join us. Thank you very much for being here tonight. Do come and join us downstairs for a drink. Good night.